Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, joining me on the Godcast this week is Catherine Burbel Singh. Now, Catherine is uh, a head teacher, actually known uh, for being the strictest head teacher in Britain. Um, also, uh, Catherine's got a very good media profile. Uh, you may have seen her in the news recently, actually, um, among many other talents and, and, and activities. Catherine, welcome to the Godcast. How are you? How are you? Fine, thanks. Thanks for having me. How's the day going? Oh, it's going well. Always very busy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thanks. So before I get on to kind of educational questions, I'm 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 quite interested to learn a bit about yourself. Um, I was wondering where your um, where in life the decision to become a teacher started. Do you think? When I was at university, um, I went to Oxford, and um, I went along to one of these McKinsey drinks, and thought I could never do this sort of thing. Um, and then I was involved in uh, an organization at the university that sent uh, people like me, state educated, ethnic minority, that kind of thing, into the inner city to talk to children in schools to say, look, you might think that it's for posh white people, but actually um, I'm there and I'm doing OK. So uh, I did that. And at the beginning, the kids would be saying, oh, it's a bunch of snobs. I don't want to go. And at the end, they'd be saying, oh, well, maybe I'll apply. And I thought, oh, actually, you can make a real difference to people's lives um, if you go into teaching. So I thought I decided teaching was for me. Yeah. Just share a bit with us, Catherine, a few recollections of your own education, maybe primary school. I mean, I spend uh, as a church, uh, somebody who works in the church, spend a lot of time in uh, particularly primary schools. What were your recollections of, of primary school as, as a young child? Um. Well, I was a bit naughty, I think, when I was in... So I grew up in Canada, so I was in grade one, year one. And um, I remember my friend and I, we we skived off one afternoon. <laughs> and um, and the reason was because we were always late coming back in after um, after break. And, uh, and Mrs. Scheinman said to us, if you're late again, you're in serious trouble. And we were late again. We looked down the corridor and we saw that everybody was sat there you know, on the carpet, ready to get read of some book. And um, we thought, oh my goodness, we can't go because we're going to be in loads of trouble. So we ran back outside and we were so silly that we actually went and leaned against the window of the classroom. So of course, Mrs. Scheinman could see us, you know, outside. And she was pointing at us saying, Amy, Catherine, what are you doing? You know, and and we we looked around and looked through the blinds because there were the blinds, so you couldn't really see properly. And we looked through and we realized it was the classroom and we saw her shouting at us. And so we ran off <laughs> and we ran into the playground and um, we hid under the slide. There was this big slide you could hide under. And um, she came out, Mrs. Scheinman came out. And was calling our names, you know, where are you? Where are you? And my friend Amy kept saying, we need to go out. We need to go out. And I kept saying, no, let's just stay. We'll just stay. <laughs> and Amy was saying, come on, where she's caught us. And I said, she hasn't caught us yet. We can stay here. So eventually, obviously, we came out and um, we were sent to see the principal, Mr. McGillchrist. <laughs> and um, and uh, Amy was terrified. And Mr. McGill Chris was this big man and he put his hands on his hips and he looked down at us and Amy was cowering behind me. And <laughs> I can't remember what he said. I don't know what happened. I mean, obviously we got into trouble and that was that. 
But we did, there were a couple of times that we were sent to see Mr. McGilchrist. <laughs> we, were, we were obviously a bit naughty. Oh, but we were both on top of the class. <laughs> we were top of the class. So, you know, we were both naughty and, and you know, good academically. Yeah, well, I was slightly different because I, I was naughty and not very good academically. And I used to hide behind bookcases so I wouldn't be seen and things. But were you ever aware of your naughtiness or maybe the impact that that had on other children in the classroom? I, I don't think I ever really was. I just I just perhaps couldn't stop myself as a young boy. I'm not sure we disrupted or anything. That wasn't what we were doing. Uh, so there wasn't any impact on anyone else. It was being late or... Oh, I remember once with a teacher, you know, being a bit sassy. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but I must have been very annoying for teachers, I think, probably <laughs> then. I got quite serious when I was older. So, you know, outside of primary school, mm -hmm. I was, you know, and I always worked hard, actually. Yeah. But I wasn't naughty later on at, at secondary school and so on. There I was I was I was a good kid. <laughs> That's good to hear. And when and when you uh, became a teacher, how, how soon into your career, Catherine, did you feel that you had the potential to go and lead a school? Was it was it quite quick? Were you, were you uh, a leader by uh, almost natural instinct or was it something that evolved over a period of time? Um, yeah, I always wanted I always wanted to be a superhead. So I wanted to go into a failing school and turn it around. That was always my plan from the, right at the beginning, I thought that was what I wanted to do. I say right at the beginning, you know, after I'd been teaching for maybe a few months or something, I thought that would be a fun thing to do. Um, so I'd always wanted to be ahead, but I also knew that life was long, so I wasn't in any big rush. I wanted to enjoy the the journey. So, uh, you know, I, I, I was a head of department for some years. I was um, an assistant head. I was a deputy head, you know, I, I, I liked all of that. Um, you know, I love schools. I love kids. I love, um, you know, I, I love the job, really. And I love my job now, being headmistress. Yeah. Some, something I wanted to ask you, I, no, I noticed that you worked for quite a long period in Streatham. Um, and I, although I, I've got a Lancashire accent and I've spent most of my life in Burnley in the north, I was actually born in Tooting. Um, oh. And I, I wonder how you feel or think my life might have been different um um growing up in uh, in london as opposed to growing up into um a provincial town in in east lancashire or, or do you think there isn't much difference uh, perhaps where i'm going with this is this idea of of leveling up and the north south divide um and i'm because I'm, i've never been into school in the south i was wondering if you feel there are more differences between the two well um I think that it's wrong to think of the schools in the north and then the schools in the south. I think there are different um, schools in every place. So there are some really great schools in the south and there's some really great schools in the north and there are also some poor schools in both places. Um, I think uh, you could have gone to a terrible school in Tooting or around there and had an awful time or you could have gone to a good school. Same thing up north. Um, it, it, it depends on the head, you know, the, the head and the senior team are so important to a school. And sometimes a school can be terrible one year and then five years later be excellent, depending on the senior team that's come in and what, whether they're turning the school around. Um, I think that uh, being in a big city like London, so that's school, but then there's the just the big city 
effect. Um, you know, depending on what kind of child you would have been and so on, there are real problems with gangs and all that kind of thing in London. Um, but I suspect there is uh, less apathy uh, that um, if you're in a town where there there isn't much work and so on up north, that uh, people may not be so in the, the good school or the bad school, whichever one it is, it doesn't matter if, for this point that I'm making uh, in London, there's always, it does, there's always a sense of, well, there's work to get onto. You're, you're moving on to a job and you're surrounded by people in your uh, community who are working. Um, depending on the town up north, that, that might be less so. Yeah. Uh, and that can have an effect, obviously, on children if you are surrounded by a number of people uh, who are unemployed. Of course, there are unemployed in London as well. Um, but there will always be people around who are also working. So and obviously, I don't know what your town was like and I don't know what your school was like. So it's hard to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, but Burnley is just falling to one of the categories of, of one of the most deprived towns in Right. in the country uh, and and I'm just interested to know what you think about this so so Burnley had uh, all their high schools were knocked down and rebuilt and right. uh, we're very much in an urban setting uh, the high school was built brand new state of the art high school was built in uh, the urban estate um surrounded by council properties surrounded by all the, the the issues that you will be aware of addiction alcohol abuse domestic violence all those things um the school, when it was built, was was fabulous. It is fabulous, um, but over a period of years, it it, it uh, the standards, the results declined, fell into special measures, mm-hmm. and eventually it was closed and it was mothballed. Right. I find that a huge sadness, actually. You know, because actually, I think it says an awful lot to the people living in that state. That estate, it says something about perhaps society how we just let this beautiful school go. What would you what would you have done, Catherine, in that situation if you were the in, in this area? I don't know if that's happened near to you or not, but interested to know what your thoughts are. Well, um, schools fail um, for all sorts of reasons, but for similar reasons, um, it, there's no. So first, you need staffing, and that can be hard in a place like Burnley. It'll be hard to find staff. So you need to get over that hurdle and be able to get staff into the building. Um, but then the the adults need to be in authority. And uh, if you're not in authority, you'll end up closing eventually. <laughs> That's what will end up happening. Uh, because what happens is that slowly it erodes over time. So the behavior erodes, the quality of the teaching isn't very good. Um, the teachers feel like they're fighting every day just to get the kids to sit down. It's a nightmare. So then the teachers leave. You can't replace them. The kids are spinning further and further out of control. So um, there is the issue around, well, are they coming from an environment where there are lots of unemployed people and so on? So how motivated will they be? That's true. But if you run a very tight ship, um, and have uh, have high standards for the children with the staff and everybody's working together, you'd be amazed at what can be achieved. Um, but 
often that isn't necessarily the case because, you know, when people call me the strictest headmistress, they're not being nice. They're being horrible. They're insulting me. <laughs> they're saying, oh, she hates kids. She's strict. Um, and so when teachers and head teachers feel uh, uncomfortable in being strict, they're not going to do it. And eventually the school closes down. Now, that, that sounds like I'm being silly. How can I make such a jump? But it erodes over time. If the children take over the school, the teachers will leave the school. And then the place is so bad that you have to close it down. That is what ends up happening. Yeah. And that's what people don't understand. You need to have high standards in order to provide children with an excellent education. I, I suppose I'm going to ask a question. What parents might say is like, you know, um, I think when you think of super schools and high performing schools, that they're, they're perfect. But surely, Catherine, you have issues there like everybody else does. You know, petulance, um, uh, maybe antisocial behavior or or if you don't. What are what are the rules? What is the strictness? I, I don't like the word strictness, but what are the ground rules for the kids that when they yeah. come in, they know what they're going to get? What are, what are the specifics? Yeah. So the thing is, is that what school leaders need to know is that they can change the behavior of their kids, whatever the kids' backgrounds, whatever um, the families are like and so on. And I know that you can have some difficult families who are not supportive. You can change their behavior. Children go to school to learn. They all do, okay? all of them. Um, but they will push back because that's what children do. But if they feel that you are pushing back when they push back, then they'll stop pushing back or at least they won't push back as much. <laughs> so we've got kids in detention every single day, but they're for small things. So they turned around in the lesson. They were fiddling loads with their pens. Um, they were daydreaming for ages outside the window. Now, people will hear, your, your audience will hear that and think, gosh, that's a bit mean giving a detention for that. Well, they've got a demerit, demerit in the first place for as a warning. Second demerit means a detention. That is consistently given out throughout all of the classrooms in all of their lessons. So they know what they're doing. So they need to pay attention or they're going to end up in detention. Now, when you make it so that the tiniest things can get you a detention, the big things just don't happen. So when people say to me, what happens when your kids get into a fight in a lesson? What happens when they start shouting at each other or they insult each other and so on? And I say, well, they don't do that. They say, well, how is that possible? I say, but that's because it's like the expression, you take care of the pennies and the pounds take care of themselves. It's yeah. the same idea here. You look after the tiny things. So broken windows theory, Giuliani turned around New York with exactly this theory. When he wanted to fix New York, he... Uh, rubbed the graffiti off the subway cars and you might think well you've got you know murderers gang members running the city w why are you taking graffiti off the the subway cars well that is how he turned around new york and it's exactly the same here you deal with the tiny things the uniform need ties up to the top shirts tucked in they don't get that they get a demerit and so on now what it means for instance at our school we never give, I often forget to talk about uniform because we never give demerits for uniform ever because the uniform is always perfect, always. It is now the culture of the school that no uniform would ever not be perfect. <laughs> so you can change their behavior. <clears throat> when our kids start here, they're a nightmare. They come in year seven, we have to teach them how to behave in a Michaela way. Yeah. They were in their primary schools with their shirts untucked and their ties all over the place and so on. But they quickly adapt to the Michaela standards and change who they are. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I, I was thinking about that as a question is that, you know, quite often you hear parents say, oh, the, you know, the GCSE years are critical. Um, but, I, I, you know, personally, just f- from the outside looking in, the transition from year six to year seven is critical as well, isn't it? So so you would in, in, in so will you have rules on haircuts, fake tanning, those kind of things? Is that just a no-no? Yeah, well, all, all our kids are ethnic, so fake tanning isn't a thing. But um, I say all of them, practically all of them. Um, but yeah, they're not allowed any jewelry. They're not allowed any makeup. Uh, the haircuts have to be a particular type of haircut. I mean, when I say particular type, you know, we we wouldn't allow, we talk about two haircuts on one head, where you get it short and then it goes really long and that kind of thing. We're not allowed, they're not allowed to do that. Yeah. And if they have the wrong haircut, they're sent home and they know it. And uh, we used to struggle with that big time, you know, at the beginning. But now it's very rare that a kid gets into trouble for his haircut because they it's just it's expected, it's known, everybody gets it, and it's just with the done thing. Yeah. And and just on that that matter of ethnicity, um in Burnley we're 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 um where we are, we are it's a very white parish that I'm part of. Yes. It's very multicultural. You know, we I think we have 15 different nationalities in our local primary school and that can be a challenge, can't it, for teachers to bring that together and celebrate that? I suppose there's two questions. One is, how do you do that? Um, and 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 secondly, as a head teacher, Catherine, how important is spiritual development for you and your school? Because many of these kids will come from religious families where that is important. How do you celebrate all that in one big, wonderful school community? Yeah, well, that's where we are very different. We don't celebrate our differences. We celebrate what we have in common. And therefore, we are British. So we sing God Save the Queen, King. <laughs> we sing um, Jerusalem. I've added thee my country. Uh, we very much celebrate the fact that we're all British together and that we belong to our country. And that sense of belonging makes an enormous difference to the way in which children buy into the school and buy into what they might do with their lives that they have something to contribute in their country and they have a sense of duty towards their community. And these are the kinds of values that we push very much with them. So when you talk about spiritual development, um, we very much want them to have a moral core and we talk about their sense of morality and teach them the difference between right and wrong, teach them the idea of taking personal responsibility and having a duty towards other people um, and working hard being kind that's our motto work hard be kind um and we are narrating this stuff over and over and over again so um i think people for instance in terms of advice that they 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 do things with kids once and then that's it whereas in fact you need to be repeating it constantly if you want um well if you want kids to buy into what you're about you know and to People often comment here when they come and visit, teachers say, gosh, your bu- level of buy-in is so high. Um, and it's true. The level of buy-in is really high. Mm. Uh, even the naughty kids, they know what they're getting out of the school and they want to be here. And, and, I, and I guess, um, I don't, I don't want to ask you to give uh, your teachers an appraisal online on a on a podcast, but but I guess that that would say that you're, am I right in saying your school retention is pretty good? You know, the 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 not only are the children enjoying the learning, but the teachers are learning. You hear so often, don't you, about disillusion in all professions, you know, whether it's the uh, the police force or education or 
or the NHS is this disillusionment with with the job or the vocation that they they feel called to. Um, you know, is 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 morale good amongst the team? Very good. <laughs> Very good. I mean, a lot of the teachers say things like they couldn't teach anywhere else. They're sort of they're stuck here, as it were, you know, um, and teachers who leave, they leave because they're moving out of London because they've got married and they're having kids or they leave teaching. Um, so our teachers work very hard, but they are a real um, family. You know, we talk about, uh, like I said, belonging, belonging to your school. The teachers here really belong together and they love working with the kids and um, they get a lot out of it because, of course, they have purpose in their lives. They see the impact of what they're doing daily on the children. It's fascinating to see. I mean, you know, uh, again, I'm not an, an expert on education, but it almost sounds like a private school model. How How is this being received in, in London and the wider education? You know, what, you know, because if this is the magic bullet, Catherine, this should be in every school shouldn't it in every town up and down the british isles so if it is why isn't it would you say because our values are not very fashionable these days they are small c conservative old-fashioned values that um you will understand but um i think many people do not why what why do you think that is what is that an erosion of society or erosion yeah. of what just changed? You know, one of my teachers pointed out, he's a Christian, he pointed out to me that when Nick Clegg uh, became deputy prime minister or when he became leader of the Lib Dems, maybe, uh, yeah, because that, that was a little bit before that, maybe 20 years ago or so, um, he had to explain to everybody why he was an atheist. And this was quite shocking to us, apparently. I don't remember, but... Um, and this Christian member of staff of mine was saying... Look, 20 years ago, it was shocking if you weren't a Christian. Nowadays, it's shocking if you are. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, we've changed enormously as a society. And those Christian values that used to be normal in our society, some, some of those values have just disappeared. Now, I'm not a Christian, but I suppose because I was brought up in a Christian household and went to church when I was younger, those values are just part and parcel of who I am. And I don't question them. So... I run a secular school. I consider myself to be secular. I don't really believe in God necessarily. Although I'm not an atheist, I would consider myself to be an agnostic. Um, I do follow those values, you know, and I know all about Jesus Christ and his life and the things he did. And and I, I take for granted the idea that one should love one's neighbor as oneself. Um, I think many of us do, actually, because we've inherited these values from Christianity and we believe that that's just a normal way of thinking. It's not a normal way of thinking. We think like that thanks to Christianity. But of course, because Christianity is slowly disappearing across the country, um, those values are slowly disappearing as well. Yes. Um, just listening to you, Catherine, you know, I, I know you've said you're an agnostic, but what, what, I hear from, what I hear from you talking just sounds like you're, you're preaching the gospel. You're, 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 you're <laughs> teaching a, 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 you know, a, a Christian value of love and kindness and respect and tolerance, all the, which, which is wonderful. But, um, but, but people are listening to you, aren't you? Your media profile is, you know, I, I, you know, I've I've interviewed hundreds of people now on the Godcast. But you're everywhere. You know, you're in the papers. You're on the telly. So people are listening, aren't they? And and, and are you are you passionate about this enough for this to be to be nationalised, or have you enough on your plate just keeping this local at the school that you're you're part of? 
no, we have tried. We wanted to open a primary school. We were stopped. We wanted to do a secondary school in Stevenage. Uh, that didn't work out. We applied to do a whole leadership program to help other schools become like us. That was prevented from happening. Um, unfortunately, um, not everybody agrees with what we do or thinks that we should um, expand the idea elsewhere. Yeah. Um, Catherine, just a few things to finish off. It's been lovely talking to you and, and learning a bit about your school and yourself. What what bits do you, please don't take this the wrong way, you're a head teacher, but what do you miss about the actual daily classroom activity or do you still make a point of getting into classrooms and actually teaching? Quite a few head teachers I speak to say, I do love my job, but but I do miss the classroom. Is Do, do you fall into that category? Yeah, I miss the kids because I don't see the kids really. Um nowhere near like you do as a teacher and you know it's our role as head teachers to have a bit of distance from the kids I think because it makes us a little bit scarier so you know I always say I'm like the Wizard of Oz and they never know what's going on in my office and then I come out and I do assembly and they have to stand for me and it's all oh is Miss Marple Singh you know and I go and see the year sevens and they say you're a VIP miss and all this kind of thing so you've got to have that distance so you can maintain the aura of mystery and so on but um the thing is that uh I do miss them. <laughs> you know, when I was a form tutor, you know, when I first started uh, in this boys' school, and they'd call me mum instead of miss, you know, by accident. And you get to pick them up when they fall down and you talk to them and they're just lovely. And, you know, all of that. I miss all of that because I don't do so much of that anymore. And um, I have a different role to play. But then when I get my young staff who are 24, 25, and they, they sit with me. I think of one of my science teachers recently I was talking to, and she was talking to me about her form and how excited she was about them, her little year sevens. And she was smiling and talking about them in the way that I used to. And I thought, well, I do my job so that she can do hers. You know, it's yeah. her turn now. It's her turn to do the things that I used to love to do. And I have this, I have a different role. And as much as I love my job, it's true. I do miss the kids. I miss all of that. But it would be wrong of me to have that because then I wouldn't be able to be the effective head that I am. Yeah. Catherine, I'm guessing you're heavily oversubscribed, are you, when it comes to year seven in Tate? Would that be right? Well, we are oversubscribed. But interestingly, the way admissions works is that you choose your schools one to six and you put your application into the council and you have just as much chance of getting into our school, whether you choose us first or sixth. Now, the council will try and get you your first choice, but often people don't get their first choice. And so I'd say we have a, a, a quarter, maybe a third of the kids who come to us who've chosen us first, but most of them have not chosen us first. And right. some of them have chosen us fourth, fifth, sixth, which means, of course, they didn't really want to come here. But what is interesting is that kids will get onto waiting lists. You know, they come here, they start. They get onto waiting lists at other schools. And if six weeks, six months later, a place comes up at another school, their parents then say, right, you know, let's go. You can go to this other school. The kid will turn around and say, I don't want to go. I'm really happy at Michaela. So, you know, that's always a good sign, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so, definitely. Uh, Catherine, I just want to finish uh, by, uh, you know, you're, you're a highly respected uh, teacher and you, you, you've been uh, decorated for your services to education. Um you know, I, I know a lot of teachers over the years, and but I, I also know that some people's morale is very low and they are 
struggling to get out to bed in the morning and they're finding everything a real struggle. Maybe that's COVID related, I don't know, but could you just perhaps finish by offering a word of encouragement, particularly to teachers who, you know, might just be finding it all a bit tough going, you know, and maybe you might just say, well, get out, you know, if, if, if uh, you know, it's too hot in the kitchen, get out, but, but maybe something. No, I wouldn't say that. Um, I would say that teaching is the best job in the world and that, you know, we're all going to be, well, we hope, if we're lucky, we're going to be 85 one day. And when you're 85 and you're on your deathbed, you want to be able to look back and say, I contributed. I did something to make the world a better place. And teaching, well, you are making the world a better place every day because you're changing the lives of kids. And sometimes it can be um, <clears throat> hard going. It's a lot of work. It can be stressful, emotional. Uh, there's no other job more challenging. Um, but the fact is you get better and better at it every day and you want to try and invest in yourself and in your own development and own it so that you can get better and better. And just remember that when you're older, you're going to be able to look back and say, I did something, you know, I left my mark. I made the world a better place. Uh, you know, the people who are working in the city in some top bank, you know, driving their BMWs and so on. I don't know what they say on their deathbed, but I know I'm going to be able to look back and say, I did something worthwhile. And, um, I think all of us can do that as teachers. And I think it's something we should be proud of. I, I can't really follow that, Catherine. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. You know, you're a very busy lady. Thanks for thanks for coming on the Godcast. And we send our very best wishes and love to you down from Burnley all the way down to London and, thank and say thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. All right. One day I'll come up and visit Burnley. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. God bless. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.